Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine for Friday, May 5th. I'm Shelby Herbert reporting for KFSK. The Greens Creek Silver Mine on Admiralty Island is looking to expand. In March, the, forest, the National Forest Service put out an environmental assessment to look at a few different expansion plans. Public comment on those plans has been extended to May 23rd. The Hakla Greens Creek Mine on Admiralty Island is making plans to expand their waste storage facility. It's a crucial step in extending the life of the mine. But some environmentalists have questions about the mine's impact in the Tongass National Forest, where it operates. Are these metals bioaccumulating up the food chain? Do you get fugitive dust? And is that lead being taken up by the plants, and then in turn being concentrated through the deer and the eagles and this and that? And, and what's happening to those populations? That's Guy Archibald. He's a contract scientist for the nonprofit Friends of Admiralty Island. And one of their chief concerns is fugitive dust. In simple terms, that's the dust that blows off of mining waste. And it can carry traces of toxic metals like lead with it. Greens Creek is known as the nation's largest silver producer. But they also mine gold, zinc, and lead. When all of that valuable material is extracted, the leftover rock is stored in something called tailings. They're basically piles of ground rock that are managed by the mine. And that's where fugitive dust comes from. Without more space to store tailings, the mine's operation could end within a decade. This proposed expansion would be the third since the mine opened in 1989. Mike Satry manages government and community relations for Greens Creek. He says that from the mine's perspective, the expansion is pretty routine. It's really um, just a continuation of managing our tailings facility the way we always have, but uh, simply letting us add uh, a little bit more space. The Forest Service looked at four different options for the expansion in an environmental assessment. That came out in March. The public has the opportunity to comment on those options until next week. There are a few outright opponents to the mine's continued operation, especially since Greens Creek is one of Juno's most prominent private employers. But environmental groups like Friends of Admiralty Island are calling for more signs before the plans move forward. We need more uh, baseline information that compares the existing situation to what it was before the mine started. That's John Neary. He's the president of Friends of Admiralty Island. And he sums up the key concern that many environmentalists share at this stage. Greens Creek already does a lot of monitoring. They check water quality, sediment, and tissue samples from marine animals like mussels or sea worms. But some say that monitoring doesn't do enough to compare current conditions to pre-mining conditions. In other words, they say there's not enough science to understand the cumulative impacts of the mine. And some are especially concerned about Hawk Inlet. It's an important source of subsistence food for Juno and Angoon. And the existing tailing storage sits nearby. Neri says the existing monitoring doesn't do enough to ensure the health of those subsistence resources. One of our top concerns is that there are people that eat whatever it is that occurs in the marine environment, right? There are crabs and clams and halibut and seals. Uh, so it needs to be safe enough for human consumption. Hawk Inlet was at the center of a debate just recently. Archibald released a study on behalf of Friends of Admiralty Island. It claimed a 50% increase in lead levels for the inlet based on an analysis of clamshells collected there. The study attributes that increase to fugitive dust. 
These findings attracted the attention of both the mine and the state. The Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation publicly called the clamshell study misleading in a press release last month. But the state and the mine cited long-term studies of clam tissue samples in the inlet. They show no increase in lead. And Sadri says he's confident in that data. There's an overall conclusion that the mine is not significantly you know, impacting Hawk Inlet. And that's been a, a recurring message from, from the agencies, both, uh, you know, both state and federal. But concerned stakeholders say tissue samples don't speak to the health of the whole marine ecosystem. For instance, there's no regular monitoring of seals, and that's an important subsistence resource. Archibald says he hopes the mine will consider a more robust population study to prove the health of the inlet. You know, this is the most profitable silver mine, I believe, in the United States, if not the world. They need to be able to do a better job here. According to Satry, Greens Creek has a good track record when it comes to meeting environmental quality standards. He says they want to continue that. We understand that there are stakeholders who are concerned, you know, about impact, and, and, and we've met with them and sat down with them. And, you know, we just want to be able to continue to do what we've always done there, uh, make sure that we're, we're responding to any of our agency or stakeholder concerns, and give us certainty moving forward. Public comments can be submitted online or in person at the Forest Service Ranger Station in Juneau. The public comment period will remain open now through Thursday, May 8th. In Juneau, I'm Anna Canny. The deadline to extend, uh, the deadline to comment has been extended to May 23rd. All three members of Alaska's congressional delegation released statements strongly condemning Tuesday's ruling from the U.S. District Court of Western Washington, which, if left unchallenged, will force the closure of the king salmon troll fishery in southeast Alaska this summer. Alaska's senior senator, Lisa Murkowski, wrote, This is a disastrous decision for southeast Alaska that will only serve to harm those small boat troll fishermen who are trying to provide for their families. This lawsuit should have been dismissed months ago, but now threatens devastating restrictions that will harm hundreds of Alaskans and dozens of coastal communities, all while doing nothing to actually benefit the Puget Sound orca population. The lawsuit was filed in early 2020 against the National Marine Fisheries Service by a Washington state conservation group, the Wild Fish Conservancy, which argued the interception of king salmon in southeast Alaska was harming a small population of threatened orcas known as southern resident killer whales. Alaska Senator Dan Sullivan called the judge's ruling outrageous, writing, What's most remarkable about this case is that the judge and Wild Fish Conservancy totally ignore much more likely causes of the orca decline, like the toxins, pollution, noise disturbance, and vessel traffic that have undoubtedly wreaked havoc in the Puget Sound region. Alaska's lone member of the U.S. House, Representative Mary Peltola, joined the senators, writing, If this order is allowed to stand, southeast Alaska will suffer a devastating loss, putting thousands of jobs at risk in communities that depend on the sustainably managed fishery. In March of this year, the delegation filed an amicus brief with the U.S. District Court in supporting southeast troll fishermen. Other interveners in the suit are the Alaska Trollers Association and the state of Alaska. The Alaska legislature this spring passed a resolution in support of the fishery. The the governor has said he'd appeal the case to the U.S. Supreme Court if necessary.
A master fabric artist and basket weaver from Ketchikan led a workshop in Petersburg last week. Here's the story on Kathy Russo, an artist who combines basket weaving styles and materials from Southeast Alaska and Central America. Kathy Russo came to Southeast Alaska for a job with the U.S. Forest Service in the 70s. Then, in the late 80s and early 90s, Russo was one of the first students who learned traditional raven's tail weaving, which had been lost for 200 years. So the main techniques I use are twining and knotless netting in my work. And the twining is the techniques that are used for the traditional Northwest Coast basketry and the raven's tail and chilcat. Russo was mentored by legendary weavers in Southeast Alaska, like Dolores Churchill. She went on to teach the technique for indigenous organizations across the Southeast. Russo says weaving helped ground her during her husband's recovery from a liver transplant. You know, one good thing is I can weave anywhere. When my husband was in the hospital, I wove in the hospital in his room the whole time I was there. There's a whole series that I did of baskets during that time. Russo is a non-Indigenous person and is hesitant to explain the difference between raven's tail and chilcat weaving for fear of misrepresenting a culture she doesn't belong to. Deborah Ogara says the weaves are similar, but raven's tail came first. Ogara is a Petersburg-based tribal government scholar and artist. Her Shingit name is Jiksuk, and she is a raven of the Teton clan. She's weaved for 15 years and has her work on display at the Juno Douglas City Art Museum, though she still calls herself a beginner. She attended Russo's basket weaving workshop. So Raven's Tale actually predates Chilcat, um, and it's woven from left to right on warps that are made out of mountain goat wool that's been processed and spun into warps. The warp is the yarn stretched out vertically on a loom before the weaver passes more yarn, or weft, horizontally through the fabric. Ogara says that out of the raven's tail style evolved the Chilcat design. And um, what happened is the process of form line, which is indigenous to this area, and the weavers, they started doing curves and ovoids and circles and weaving in both directions, left to right and right to left. Another difference between the two designs is that the raven's tail warp doesn't contain yellow cedar bark. Deborah says Southeast Alaska weavers are dealing with a shortage of yellow cedar. According to the U.S. Forest Service, the species is in decline across its range due to something called fine root freezing injury, which happens when low snowpack exposes the tree's roots to lethally cold temperatures in early spring. Ogara says the yellow cedar shortage has inspired some weavers to experiment with new fibers. Russo brought plant materials from Central America for her students to work with. But I think the one that was the most interesting was the materials that they were using to weave. They were using those big, wide leaves that come off the, um, oh, I forgot the name of the plant. Oh, no, Aga- Agave? Agave, the agave plant. She brought some of that with her that then we were able to use for a weaving project, which was really fun. Russo specializes in backstrap weaving, a type of traditional weaving that originated in South and Central America. She learned these textile techniques during her time as a Fulbright scholar in Guatemala. From then on, I every year basically have been going back and forth between Ketchikan and Guatemala. I learned about hammock making, horse gear, all sorts of other things made from agave fiber. But Russo has always gravitated towards baskets. Ogara says she was excited to see all of the different styles Russo picked up from weavers in Central America. 
I think every society, every country has people who do weaving. So it's a, it's a universal language. It's a universal um, activity. Ogara is a former judge, and she's currently researching pre-colonial Tlingit justice systems for her Ph.D. Through her research, she's learned that for Tlingit and Haida people, the traditional practice of weaving is about storytelling. Many of our weavings, carvings, were really living documents that memorialized or recorded historical events or um, relationships or were made to help commemorate a, a solution to a problem. So our weavings are our living documents. Ogara says she hopes to incorporate her practice and study of weaving into her research project, not only to learn how people solved disputes before colonization, but to see if any of those practices can help develop present-day tribal justice systems in Alaska. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. Some of Russo's agave fibers and cedar bark baskets will go on sale at Ketchikan's annual Blueberry Festival. A series of Chilkat robes, including one of Ogara's, is on display at the Juneau Douglas City Museum and will be available to the public until the end of the summer. A trio of male wolverine kits are this year's first animal births at the Alaska Zoo in Anchorage. The brothers, who are still unnamed, were born in February to parents Jumbo and Olga. The zoo just announced their arrival last week, giving them time to settle in. The zoo's director, Pat Lampy, says the tiny wolverines are starting to develop personalities. One of the keepers had a great video and the baby kind of came right up to the fence and was growling and snarling and acting like he was a real tough guy. Zookeeper Talea Goodwin says wolverines share a playful demeanor with relatives like minks and ferrets. Their overall personality is very similar to that. They're very smart, they're very intuitive, and so they're awesome to work with. I love them. This is the second litter for parents Jumbo and Olga. Lambie says the birth is also a victory for the zoo's husbandry staff, which have fine-tuned breeding and denning areas within the wolverine habitat. Not every place has success, um, and we tried for several years without any success, but uh, then it finally happened. Uh, nature finds a way. Wolverines reside in the wild throughout Alaska, but the kits at the zoo likely won't stay here for too long. Lampy expects they'll be transferred to other zoos in need of wolverines. Their parents came to Alaska from zoos in Sweden and Russia. Lampy says moving the kits involves concerns ranging from health certificates to tarmac temperatures on transfer flights. There's a period of time in the summer if they're going long distances or through very uh, high temperature areas that animals cannot be transported. So it's all about the safety and concern for the health of the animals. The best chance for visitors to see the kits in the Wolverine exhibit is in the morning hours, just after opening, when zoo traffic is calmer. Thank you for joining me for Midday Magazine. My name's Shelby Herbert, and I report for KFSK.